98, a psalm. Sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done wondrous deeds. His right hand and his holy arm have worked out his salvation. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a loud shout to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of singing, with trumpet and the sound of the horn. Make a loud shout before King Yahweh. Let the sea roar as well as its fullness. Let the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. <clears throat> so in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you indeed are the God who has given us a new song to sing. We recognize the new song is the song of salvation, the song of that recognizes that you are God and the extraordinary things that you have accomplished first and foremost, our redemption through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask your blessing upon our time as we work through this psalm together. May it speak to our hearts. May it challenge us to be a people who do delight to declare your praises to one another and to all peoples so that you might be rightly glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are some who have given to the title of this particular psalm the Magnificat of the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the word Magnificat, it's a word that's generally applied to the hymn of Mary from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. There, Mary begins to recite some incredible themes that are found in the Old Testament. Most often, we think of Mary's hymn as being somewhat reminiscent, and it is, of Hannah's prayer that she uttered in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But along with that, there's also this, this um, echo of Psalm 98. It might be very well that some of the themes that Mary had in her mind as she was uh, praying her prayer in Luke 1 came directly from Psalm 98. And so if you would allow me to do a little exercise here, I'm going to leave the legacy standard up there. You can turn to Luke 1, verse 46, if you would like, or you can follow along in Psalm 98 and just notice how Mary echoes many of the themes that we find in this particular psalm. So let me read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts, that's Magnificat in Latin, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones He and exalted those who were humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Amen. So again, as we work through this particular psalm, I want you to know that the themes again are echoed throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament. This psalm, although we're not told exactly who wrote it, uh, we know it was written what we call a post-exilic psalm. It was written after or as the exiles are coming out of Egypt, about 520 B.C. They're coming back into the land. The temple has been rebuilt, and there was a series of psalms that were written. This would be one of those psalms that was written, written for that particular time. In the psalm, I'd have you note that I've divided it into three sections. And the first section, and we'll have these up on the screen in a moment, the first section is found in verses 1 and 2, and it will address the theme of the might of the Lord, the might of the Lord. The second is found in verses uh, 3 through 6 and addresses the mercy of the Lord. And then finally, verses 7 through 9 will address the theme of the majesty of the Lord. Of the Lord. So we're going to see the might of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord, and the majesty of the Lord. Before I begin, I'd also have you note that of the seven references made of God in these nine verses, seven times God is referred to, only one is he referred to as God or Elohim in the Hebrew. The other six titles use the covenant name of God, the Lord, Yahweh, and you saw that in the LASB. And so the name of Yahweh speaks to us of the self-sufficiency, the completeness, the utter faithfulness of God. So the psalmist has in mind for his readers and those who would sing this particular psalm, I want you to come to grips with how thorough and how complete and how wonderful and awesome our God is. And that ought to motivate you to sing the praise of a new song to our God. And so let's turn our attention to the text and see how this works out. Our first point then being the might of the Lord, verses 1 and 2, the might of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Our psalm begins with this The song of the Lord in verse one, our psalm begins by reminding the readers, reminding you and I that the Lord desires his people to sing. Sometimes people get self-conscious. Sometimes people don't think about singing apart from any other time than in the church. But I submit to you that Christianity is a singing religion. We do not do our mantras and we do not do chants. We sing real words about a real God who has done real things for us. And our recitation of those things, while they can be simply spoken or verbal, God says, I delight when my people sing praises to me. The Lord delights when his people sit down and compose a poem of praise to to create a marvelous melody of thanksgiving. The psalmist calls this a new song. What does that mean for us when it says in our first verse here, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Well, it means we should be bringing fresh and current rehearsals 
of the goodness of God. Beloved, there is nothing wrong with saying, I thank you, Lord, for saving me on April 29th, 1984. But if I only sing the praise of the day that God brought me out of darkness into light, if I'm not thinking in fresh terms what God has done for me today, I am not singing a new song. I'm singing a, an old song, a stale song. My new song may include things of the past. It ought to be reminiscent of the great things God has done, but bringing it up to the current and say, because of these things, I'm grateful that you continue to manifest your goodness and your righteousness and your salvation to me. So I ask you, do you sing a new song? Is it fresh every day? Notice in the opening words, we actually have a command. It is not a suggestion. This is not if you feel like it. It's not optional. God's people are called to do what? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. We are called to sing this new song. But like any good preacher, it is not enough to inform people of what God's word commands. No, the preacher of our text sets the example. And so we find the psalm immediately doing exactly what he's just called the people to do. Do you see that? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Well, what is the new song? For he has done wonderful things. What kind of wonderful things has your God done for you? In the quietness of your heart, in the stillness of the morning when you first awake, as you lay your pillow down on your head at night, what are the wonderful things that you rehearse that your God has done for you? There's the content of your new song. We are to compose this new song. Let me remind you that God expects you to sing this new song. The new song is not merely found in the singing of old hymns or even in the latest and greatest of worship songs. The idea of a new song is far more personal, far more intimate. Again, when you wake up in the morning, you are to begin to meditate on God, who he is and what he's accomplished for you, and even anticipate what he will accomplish for you in that day. Throughout your day, rehearse those truths until it's time to lay your head on your pillow at night and you go through and reminisce, my God is so great because, and you begin to list them off. Psalm 98 actually repeats the theme of Psalm 96, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 96 also begins by calling people to sing a new song. But it got me thinking, if there's a new song, there must have been an old song, right? And I began to think, okay, there's a new song, but what is this old song? And I began to think back through the Old Testament and realize that there are many old songs, and they're good. There's the old song of Moses, sung by Israel at the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army was swept away by the crashing walls of water through which the people of God had previously passed safely through. Beloved, that's an old song, and you can sing it, and you ought to sing it. There's the new, so, uh, the new song is the, the song of these repatriated Israelites from Babylon, those who had just experienced now a second exodus and had been delivered from a second Egypt. The old song and the new song suggest some other songs that we might look at. Do you realize there's the song of creation? We're told that the angels, after God created all things, did what? They sang 
They sang the song of creation as they praised the God who brought all things into existence in the space of six days and all very good. And in addition to this, I suggest to you that there will be a new song of redemption that we will all sing when we stand before the lamb who was slain and we will sing what? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and power and dominion and honor. From the beginning of creation then itself, through the mighty acts of God to bring himself uh, to bring to himself a people once held in bondage to the very consummation of all things where people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation will sing praise to the God who saves, who will exalt the Lamb of God who purchased and redeemed them from their sins. There has been this call to sing a new song. This is the song of the Lord. But it's not just the song of the Lord. It's a song that speaks of the strength of the Lord. Look at the, after this call to sing, we have, for he, God, has done what? Wonderful things. Some translations say marvelous things, spectacular things. And, and I get kind of giddy when I stop to think about all the incredible things God has done. But not just as I read them in the Old Testament, not even as I read them in the New Testament. Do you find yourself delighted in the things that God has done for you this day? The things that we might take for granted. He has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. As this psalm is being sung by those Israelites who are returning from their exile in Babylon, let us be reminded that the Lord needed no help in order to bring Israel out of Babylon. It wasn't that King Nebuchadnezzar was so shrewd and so uh, powerful that he snatched these people out from under the Lord and took them to Babylon to dwell for some 70 years. It wasn't that God needed help in order to throw off Nebuchadnezzar and raise up, uh, raise up the, the Persian Empire in its place. As you read the book of Daniel, we'll be impressed with the fact that God simply deals with the nations as he sees fit. In fact, he did so so dramatically to Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, had to say, you alone are the sovereign God, and you do what you want according to your will among the nations, and there is no one who can say to you, what have you done? It's quite the testimony of a pagan king. Of course, he had lost his mind and had been brought back to sanity by the Lord. But God does what he will do. God moves, beloved. God manages world powers as though they are nothing. They are nothing but, uh, but pawn pieces on a chessboard. He brings his people once again to the very soil of the promised land that he said, I will give you this land. For 70 years they thought, we're never going to see the land except a few who believed who said, no, God will keep his promises. And talk about getting giddy. Read Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, an old man by the time he reads Daniel chapter 9, but he recognizes he's doing some calculating. He had read Jeremiah the prophet who had prophesied that there would be 70 years of exile, and uh, Daniel was pretty good at math. And he could say, um, let's see, I, I was brought here in 606 B.C., and now it's about 530 B.C., and I'm doing the math, and we're getting really close to the time. And he mentions all of this in Daniel chapter 9, and he breaks forth in prayer. God, do your will. 
among the people. Bring us back into the land that you promised our people. It is human nature, though, to view world events only through human eyes. We have so much going on around us, and we get all freaked out about, you know, how corrupt our government is and, and uh, what pandemic is going to be upon us next and what's going to happen to the stock market and what are we going to do with inflation and what's, what's uh, Russia doing in Ukraine and, and is China going to invade us? And we have all of these things, and we can get all worked up about them. But I remind you that the prophet Daniel saw the rise and fall of political parties and regimes. But when he does, he constantly defines them not in terms of what they mean to us from a human perspective. But he always looked at them upon as how God is moving to fulfill his sovereign purposes in these moments. Do you know what you and I need to do today? We need to thank God that he's at work among the nations right now. I mean, uh, we, didn't, we didn't announce this well enough, but we, we know that there's a new church that just started in Bangkok, Thailand, by our missionaries, Matt and Emily Tyler. And they had help. It wasn't just them. But, uh, and, and he's just been uh, ordained as, as the one of the pastors there. So God's moving in this world. God's accomplishing his purposes. And we need to see things through those, those lenses instead of, Simply, well, if we look at it from a human perspective, guess what? This is a terrible time to live in. But I say to you, if this is the time God has given to us, this is the best time to live in. God has given us these days. He's given us these opportunities to sing that new song of praise to him <clears throat> so that others will hear of his salvation. Again, do we not tend to mark things in terms of, of world events? I think in terms of uh, presidencies, we will speak of depending on your political persuasion. We'll speak of the good old days of Ronald Reagan. We'll remind ourselves of what it was like to, to live during the days of President Clinton or, or under President Bush or President Barack Obama. We look back and consider more recently the interesting and fiery presidency of Donald Trump, and now we live in the days of, of President Joe Biden. And we can just kind of look at everything through those lenses and say, well, I wish we could go back to that, and I wish that president hadn't done this. But for the Christian beloved, we're to look back on every one of those eras and seek to know and understand that God was always moving in those times, that God's salvation has been made known through all of those times, that the praise of God is to be given in all of those times, that the believers are to sing that new song to him in all of those times. Why do I say all of this? This is the strength of the Lord. This is the power of God at work. Our God who separated the waters of the Red Sea so Israel could pass through on dry ground, that power, that's nothing compared to the power God is displaying even in our individual lives and in throughout this world in this time. Beloved, this is always the best way to view the passing events of time. If I were to sum this up for you in a singular phrase, I would say to you, God is in control. Never forget God is in control. The world may crumble around you, but God is still on the throne. You may get a sickness that is overwhelming, but God is in control. Never forget. The events of our times may be magnificent, 
or they may be minute. They may be those that are only of your own personal interest, or they may be those of global significance. But I promise you this, behind every single event, behind baptisms that happen on a Sunday in a little church, and behind what's taking place in our Congress beginning tomorrow, the hand of God, the arm of God, the strength of God is at work. Here the psalmist calls his readers to observe God's right hand, the symbol of his strength, recognizing that behind that, that uh, <clears throat> right hand is a holy arm. Notice the progression, the hand to the holy arm. And behind that holy arm stands all the resources and all the resolves of the almighty God. And note the result of the strength of the Lord. Why do we want to think about the strength of the Lord? Because... The strength of the Lord accomplishes the victory of God. It's not what we do. It's not what we say. We're not so wonderful that we're contributing to what God is accomplishing. No, God accomplishes by his power and strength all that he wants in and through you and in this world. He gains for himself the victory. Let me put, sum this up in a phrase. The Lord never loses. God is in control, and the Lord never loses. And when you think about and put those two things together, why would we not sing a new song? That is worth singing about. The same right hand and the same holy arm that were involved in the lives of the people of Israel, bringing them back out of Babylon into the Holy Land. That same God is, is involved in the little affairs of our daily lives, and his strength will be manifest. So we see the strength of the Lord, the song of the Lord. Let's look at the salvation of the Lord. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. If you uh, allow me a little freedom in the translation here of verse 2, there are two truths concerning salvation. Salvation is both known, right, and it is shown. It says revealed. Salvation is known, and it is shown. The Lord has made known his salvation. What brings people to him? The power of his, uh, the power of his deliverance has been made known, and he shows it. He reveals it, his righteousness not only to a small group, but to what? To all the nations. You know, borrowing from our sermon this morning, that word nations could be translated to all the heathens, to all those who have yet to bow the knee and worship the one true God. God has shown his salvation. This is at the heart of the message of the psalmist. Is it any wonder that, that this would be the, the very theme, the, the, the wonder of salvation, which is that God has brought to humanity. Stop and think about for this for a moment. How amazing is it that our God, that God, the holy and pure and undefiled supreme being of all the universe would desire the salvation, the deliverance of sinful wretches like you and me. We have nothing to offer him. The best among us are still but worms in his sight. We are all sinners who have alienated ourselves from God. 
And yet this God desires to make known and to have shown his salvation to us. As we, are, as we teach so often, we are unable to manufacture the salvation for ourselves. And we find then that it is God who provides it. It is God who freely, through his son Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, has granted to us the ability to know and to show his salvation. In 19, excuse me, 1896, anybody alive back then? 1896, the New York Herald sent a reporter by the name of H.M. Stanley to Africa to find one David Livingstone, who had won the hearts of the world, having disappeared in the depths of that dark continent. Stanley plunged into the interior of Africa after Livingstone had eventually found, uh, uh, looking for uh, David Livingstone, and eventually found him uh, near Lake Tanganyika. He was the only other white man in that area within hundreds of miles. Stanley's greeting has gone down in history as one of the most casual in all of history. Dr. Livingstone, I presume, is what he said. And many of us have heard that, and it's from this reporter. Livingstone refused to return to civilization with Stanley, so Stanley gave him some supplies and remained with him for about five months. He later returned, and this is the report that H.M. Stanley gave, and I quote, In 1871, I went to him as prejudiced as the biggest atheist in London. To a reporter and correspondent such as I, who had only to deal with wars and mass meetings and political gatherings, Sentimental matters were entirely out of my province, but there came for me a long time for reflection. I was out there away from a worldly world. I saw this solitary old man there and asked myself, how on earth does he stop here? Is he cracked or what? What is it that inspires him? For months, I... For months after we met, I simply found myself listening to him, wondering at the old man, carrying out all that was said in the Bible. He said, leave all things and follow me. But little by little, his sympathy for others became contagious. My sympathy was aroused, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went quietly about his business. I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it, unquote. Known and shown. David Livingstone made known the salvation of God, and he showed it in his life. He revealed the righteousness that was to be had by those who believe in Christ. By his words and actions, Livingstone had won a tough, hardened reporter to Christ and into the knowledge of the salvation of God, into God's love and kindness, offered now to all humanity. Like Israel of old, Stanley discovered that the Lord is mighty to save. This is the might of the Lord, as revealed in the song of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, and the salvation of the Lord. Let's look, look at our second point. Not only do we see and hear the might of the Lord, we see the mercy of the Lord. 
verses 3 through 6, the mercy of the Lord. And we begin with the statement of the remembrance of God's mercy. The remembrance of God's mercy. I love this idea in verse 3. Consider, God has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Go back. God has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Does God forget anything? Why does God need to remember something? God remembered his loving kindness and faithfulness. In the book of Acts, 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 26, the Apostle Paul makes a very pointed remark to one King Agrippa as he testifies before the king concerning the greatness of the salvation that was won for all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by means of his death and resurrection. Are you ready for Paul's remark? Paul said, for the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has not been done in a corner. Paul says, you know, you've seen, you've heard, the Lord has made known and has shown his salvation. You've seen all of this. Why do I bring that up? Well, of the salvation that God had uh, uh, for Israel as he brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, destroying Israel's enemies in the process, delivering them safely through the other side, is a salvation without precedence. I've never read of another account like that one. He saved his people in a most miraculous way. Would you not agree? Nothing like it has ever taken place before, and nothing like it has taken place since. The salvation that God uh, had uh, done for Israel in removing them from their native land and transporting them some 1,000 miles away to be held in bondage by the Babylonians, then to bring them back by his own hand and his own strength into their own land is a salvation without precedent, is it not? Nothing like it has been done before. That a mighty, all-conquering world power should deliberately open up its hand and, and say, let the captives go and we'll give you financial help and we'll give you protection along the way so that you can go back and build a temple to your God and worship the one that you say is the one true and living God. Nothing like that has ever taken place before. Why had this happened? Because their text says God remembers his mercy. When we think about why was Israel in Egypt and why did Israel go into captivity in Babylon and all of the rebellion that's involved in those things, but God still has mercy. God reveals his mercy. And why is this brought up God remembers his mercy, but now God's people are called to remember God's mercy as well. Do you know that, that you're alive this morning is because of God's mercy? Do you remember that? God has been merciful to you. At the time of the return of the exiles, even the heathen nations could not help but take note of what Israel's God had done. I stand before you this morning and I want to remind you that God 
that God should take sinners like us who are dead in our trespasses and sins, that he would take those who are hostile, alienated, engaged in evil deeds, and make us alive in Jesus Christ, giving us new desires and new dispositions and new affections that reflect the character of a holy God, in bringing those of us who believe to a full and complete salvation is a salvation without precedent. What God did for Israel is extraordinary. I'd love to watch the DVD and see what it was like. But what is greater is what God has brought to you through Jesus Christ. It is a salvation without precedent. It reflects to us the mercy, the compassion, the pity of our God. At the moment of our salvation, if we be genuinely saved, there is this flood of recognition that we do not deserve to be saved, that God has no uh, responsibility to save us. And so we become grateful for what we refer to as so great a salvation. You know what makes salvation so great? If you are saved, what makes your salvation so great is that he saved a sinner like you. Well, yeah, but you're a bigger sinner than I am, Pastor. How do you know? We tend to think that we will never forget. 9-11 took place, and what was the motto that went through? We will never forget. And we've moved so far away from 9-11 now that many people, what? Forget. Some don't even know what I'm talking about. The truth is we do forget. We do forget to sing to the Lord a new song. We do forget to rehearse the wonders of the strength of our God and of the salvation that's been brought to us by our Lord. We get so focused on ourselves, on our problems, on our wants, on our fleshly desires that we can forget that we are not old, but new creatures in Christ. And therefore, we are to not sing an old song, but a new song to the Lord. How grateful are we to be that even in those times when we forget, though, to rehearse God's mercy, God never forgets his mercy. Now, we can go on for days or weeks or maybe years and not rehearse the mercies of God, but God, if you belong to him, he does not forget. His mercy. Well, let's look at the results of God's mercy in verses 4 through 6. What happens when we consider the mercy of God? We have some more commands here. Uh, commands, descriptions, whatever you might want to call them. And it's noisy. These are the noisiest verses of our psalm. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Now just Imagine for a moment, if you've been in a stadium where people have gone crazy, have you ever been in a place, a stadium, and it was so loud you actually had to cover your ears? What would happen in that day when all the earth shouts joyfully to the Lord? It will be a mind-blowing event. Break 
forth with and sing for joy with praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of uh, melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. When we arrive here at verses 4 through 6, we are presented with what is actually the coronation day. The idea is that the exiles have come back into the land. The temple has been rebuilt, and the king is about to be inaugurated and restored to the throne. The king has come. We see it in verse 6. Shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. He has ascended to the throne, and all the earth now is summoned to him. So this is not speaking merely of something that took place in 516 B.C. This is looking way into the future when a king of kings and lord of lords assumes this throne, and all the earth will come, and it will be a noisy day. If you have sensitive ears, I feel sorry for you. The world is invited to participate in a joyous occasion. The world is to ring with the noise of music and the sounds of the praises of God. They are to bring instruments of music and they're to add to. The, why, why bring instruments, by the way? I mean, can you imagine all the world shouting for joy to God? And then the psalmist says, that's not enough. Bring in the, the guitars, bring in the power amps. Let's just make this thing the loudest thing we've ever heard. And again, what's the song that we'll be singing? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. The scene anticipates, beloved, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, which will begin with a burst of heartfelt gratitude to God, not only for salvation, this is no longer just about salvation, but now for the fact that the king of salvation, the king of glory, the king of heaven has come to be with us, or we've gone to be with him. That it's not just about the fact that I'm saved, it's the fact that I'm with Jesus. We, we say it this way. You know what makes heaven heaven? It's not the streets of gold. It's not that it's going to be the most splendorous place we've ever conceived of. It's going to be that Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. And that's what we're looking at. Here we are in the presence of the great one. What other choice do we have then when you think about this day, when you anticipate this future? What else can you do but sing to the Lord a new song, a song recognizing these truths? to shout joyfully, to make a noise, a joyful noise to the Lord for so great a salvation, to break forth and sing for joy and to sing the praises of him who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. What choice do we have but to bring, by, by every means possible, bring a joyous expression of gratitude to the king who has saved us and to the king who is on the throne. Praise be to our king who has graciously and wonderfully saved us by his mercy. So we've seen the might of the Lord. We've seen the mercy of the Lord. Let's look at the final verses, the majesty of the Lord, the majesty of the Lord. In verse four, note again, I know I'm going back. There's a call to praise that is to what? To all the earth. 
This is not limited. This is not to just one small particular group. All the earth, the king of salvation, is not simply the king of the Jews. And he's not simply the Lord of the church. He is not only the king of kings and Lord of lords over all the Gentiles. You might be thinking, well, we're just talking about him being king over all people. This is true. But our text says he's not just the king of people. He's the king of creation. He's over all created beings, all created things above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, when our Lord Jesus Christ first came to the earth, he could calmly walk on waves of water. He could hush the waters to a calm sleep if he so desired. He could ride an unbroken colt through cheering, shouting, palm-waving crowds. He could command fish of the sea to fling themselves into Simon Peter's net. Some of you fishermen might like to try that one. Maybe not you. He could summon a single fish to rise to Peter's line. He could command the rooster to crow. He could turn water into wine with simply his word. He turned loaves and fish. He multiplied them in his hands. And graves gave up their dead at his voice. Demons and diseases fled before him. The rocks of the earth shook beneath him, and the very sun in the sky extinguished its light as he gave up his life on the cross. This is what creation has done in the past. All those things I just said are all things of creation. But now we are told that creation will confess. Creation will proclaim that its mighty maker has come. When Jesus comes and returns, it will not just be us who are shouting joyfully. The entire creation that has been groaning and suffering in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of glory, the creation itself will rejoice. Is that not what our psalm tells us? Here the psalmist looks down through the centuries and sees that King Jesus has come again, that, and when he comes, creation itself will, grow dear, will, will uh, go delirious with delight. Two things we see take place with the coming of the king. First, we see the jubilation of the earth. When I say the jubilation of the earth, I mean the jubilation of the earth, the, the, the uh, non-living things itself, right? No, notice what it says. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. The very seas and rivers themselves, the very mountains of, and all the earth will join in this shout of the redeemed, of those who are there with Christ. They will all join this chorus to exalt the king. I started thinking about this phrase, let the sea roar. If you've ever been anywhere near the seashore in a hurricane, 
If you've ever been out on a boat in very stormy weather, the sea roaring is a devastating event, is it not? When the sea roars, it destroys. When the rivers rise and flood, it destroys and it takes lives. When hills are moved, they destroy cities. The coming king will change all of that. So many of the prophets in the Old Testament describe the extraordinary changes that take place in nature when the king arrives. Nature itself will be redeemed, and nature itself will therefore rejoice. And the, and the whole point of this, I believe, is if creation itself rejoices at the salvation that God has brought to humanity, how much more should saved humanity be rejoicing the Lord? My wife's favorite psalm, Psalm 19, you know, begins with the heavens declare the glories of God, and it uh, describes uh, all that, that creation is doing to point to, to its maker, and then it has that description there of the wonders of the word of God, and it ends like this. David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. And David, I believe, is getting after this, that knowing that creation itself points to God and that the word of God has been given to point me to you. May the things that I delight in, the things that I meditate on, the things that cause me joy and cause me to sing a new song, may that be found in the depths of my heart. Nature itself will, re will be redeemed and rejoice. No longer will the wild beast roar and kill. No longer will the scorpion sting. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and nature will be tamed. When Jesus comes, the king arrives, nature will be tamed. Some of you know I'm an animal freak. I've got a new little wild, wild raccoon. He won't let me touch him. He hates my guts. I'm working on it. Do you realize that wildness in animals the idea of animals being wild and dangerous is a direct result of the fall in Genesis 3. That this little raccoon that would rather rip my hands to shred originally was to be a pet for Adam and Eve. God gave dominion over all things to Adam in paradise, but the fall changed all of that. Again, Paul informs us in Romans 8 that all of creation groans and travails in, in sorrow at this present time. But when Jesus comes, nature will be tamed. The second man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, will take dominion over this, the forces of nature, over all the beasts of the earth, over all the resources of the planet. And they, he will graciously restore them to their pristine splendor. The curse of the earth will be removed. Paradise will be restored. In the great restoration that follows the return of Christ, the king restores plants and animals to their original nature and splendor, and therefore all the earth breaks forth in what? Jubilation. Nature itself will join the universal hymn of praise, singing this new song that we the redeemed are to sing every single day.
Well, not only is there jubilation of the earth, there's the judgment of the earth. For he is coming, it says at the end of verse 9, to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. When we considered Psalm 96 and the closing words found in that text, we noted that we often view the word judgment in more, more of a negative light. It is true that there is a negative side to the judgment of God. We looked at that in our Jude passage this morning. But judgment also has a positive side. Did you know that? And in this particular text, I believe it is the positive side that the psalmist is speaking. Note two truths that are revealed by the judgment of God. The first is that the Lord will rule faithfully. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. Let me remind you that righteousness, giving you a very simple definition, is the quality of always doing what is right. It is never doing anything that is wrong or underhanded. Now think about that for a moment. This world, we are told, will be ruled by a king who will never make a mistake. His administration will never have corruption in it. Under his reign, there will never be a miscarriage of justice. Why? Because everything this king does is right. He is faithful to that which is right and good. This king not only knows the very words and deeds of all who are subject to him, but when he judges, he actually knows the very thoughts and motivations of the heart. How many of us have read with great satisfaction the godlike wisdom of one Solomon, who dealt with those two harlots and a little baby. Both of the women had claimed that the child was their own. Solomon called for a sword, sword and proposed dividing the babe between the two of them, and at once the true mother was revealed. The Lord Jesus could say when he walked on this earth, one greater than Solomon is here. One wiser than Solomon is is here. And here he is. What glorious decisions will be handed down from his throne during his millennial reign. As wise as Solomon was, as as much has been attributed to Solomon for his wisdom, even by the Lord Jesus himself, I tell you that the wisdom that will be exercised by King Jesus will make Solomon's wisdom look that like of a toddler in kindergarten. And so we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Well, not only will the Lord rule faithfully, he will the Lord will reign fairly. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What does this mean? When King Jesus reigns and rules upon this earth, he will rule without a bias. He will rule without favoritism. It is with equity. I read of a game that has been played in Western Canada. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's, it's called Bulls. It's just called Bulls, B-O-W-L-E-L-S. It is played on a smooth velvet surface known as a green. A white earthenware ball is rolled down the green about 25 yards or more. Then the players, in turn, roll much larger balls down the green. And the object of the game is to see who can bring their ball closest to the white one. They can block uh, or knock out the other opponent's balls in the process. It all sounds straightforward, doesn't it? 
until we understand that it is a game of great, great skill because the larger balls that are rolled down the green are not quite what they seem. They are made with a bias. That is, one side of the ball is made larger than the other. And the result of that is that when the, the ball is bowled down the green, unless it is delivered with great speed, it will always curve as it rolls. A slow rolling ba ball will curve as much as six feet uh, from a straight line. Even a fast ball, when it reaches the end of its momentum, begins to turn from the straight line. And the skill of the game is learning how to overcome the bias. Well, this is what's wrong with every one of us. We all have a bias. We all are bigger on one side than the other. I don't know if you knew that. We have a bias, but this bias is a bias towards sin. We have an innate tendency to run off the straight line. And no matter what we do, we tend, tend, tend to do that curve. And even with the best will in the world, our natural tendency are so great as to overcome our better judgment. Often, even our better judgment is affected with what? Bias. But this is not so with King Jesus. He was born free of sin, born free of bias. This is what sets him apart from all other people. There was no innate tendency to err and sin in him. No, never once did he depart from the straight line that God set before him. Think about that. You and I are constantly fighting. We go this way and we come back. We go that way and we come back. We go down, we come up. We go too far up, we have to come down. Jesus never left the straight line. He was without bias. His whole life was directed to coming alongside the white ball known as the will of God. And in our text, in these closing words, when King Jesus comes back, we are told of this. Uh, told this is how he will reign he will reign with equity without bias he will reign in a straight line towards the will of God no favoritism no off-center judgment and when we stop to think about our king who will rule so faithfully and reign so fairly our king who is coming to us we circle back to the very first command of the psalm which is what Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. You want to know what to include in your new song? Read Psalm 98, and it gives you these examples. Will you commit to singing this new song to the Lord? Psalm 98 has offered us many reasons for which we can sing, and now it's time to sit and compose and offer up your song to God. What will be your magnificent? What will be your opening statement? My soul exalts the Lord. And now you fill in the blank. That's what Psalm 98 is calling us to do. What will your soul sing unto the Lord? And by the way, I would love to hear what your songs are. You don't have to sing it, but I do want to hear it. So I pray that you will work on that. Let's close, shall we, in prayer. Father God. We thank you for your commands. We thank you for the delight it is truly to sing a new song because you are the one who puts a new song in our heart. You have brought to us the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we consider what it is that you have done for us, continue to do in us, and promise to bring us to, that we will be filled with delight to compose this new song of praise to you. May it be so we ask in Jesus' name.
Well, thank you all for uh, joining us for the second hour. Uh, again, for the men, uh, you can uh, make your way over to uh, my home. I'll be there as quickly as I can, get some food. We'll join together, eat, and then at 1.30, we'll start our Men of Hope meeting. For the rest of you, I, I encourage you, I invite you, I implore you, if you're not doing anything on Thursday night, come to the Home Bible Fellowship. If you are doing something else on Thursday night, give it up, come to the Home Bible Fellowship. We'd love to see you there. It will be on Zoom. If you need that information, be on Zoom and Facebook. So if you need any information, let me know. But we'd love to have you uh, join and be part of that. And with that, we are dismissed. <laughs>